Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise for this day to gather here together to hear this word. Thank you that your providence has worked things out so that we would hear this word today. You know where we come from, all the places, the backgrounds, the weeks that we have had, the weeks that we have coming in front of us, and how desperately we need your word to rejoice in our hearts. Be thankful for your commands, your laws, your precepts, your teaching, and your truth that we might be warned, corrected, encouraged, helped, so that we might glorify you with our lives and that our own joy might increase. You know all the ways that we need conviction from your word. Lead us to repentance in our lives. You know all the ways that we need encouragement to help us persevere in obedience and continue forward loving you and loving one another. Again, for your glory and our joy in Christ's name, amen. The West is, once again, or perhaps as it has been since the Great Awakenings, trying to discern exactly what it is the church is and what it should be doing. What the church is and what it should be doing. There's much confusion and varying understandings of what the church is and what she should believe, what she should be practicing as the bride of Christ. You could say that today's sermon is very much like an introduction to the next six verses that we're going to be looking at for the next six weeks in the book of Acts, chapter 2, verse 42 to 47. In, my, in our sermon review tonight, we do sermon review, we do service review every week, as the senior pastor as well, my sermon gets reviewed by our elders, by Ryan and those who are in the service. And I know that tonight, if you're paying attention, my sermon review partly is going to be uh, that your introduction was inordinately long. And I'm aware of that. It takes up a pretty significant portion of the sermon today. That's not usual, but I want you to know I'm doing that on purpose today. It is unusual, but it is on purpose. I want to spend a good portion of time here at the beginning of our sermon today showing how important Acts, in particular these six verses about what the church is doing when they start to believe the gospel that Jesus is the Christ, that He is Lord, when they begin to believe that He was crucified on the cross for sins and rose from the grave three days later, and that He now lives at the right hand of God, what did they begin doing immediately and for the days following? I want to talk about our cultural, historical moment as a church and how those six verses speak to us, again, as an introduction, not just for today, but an unusually long talk about the historical moment of our church for the weeks to come. In our church leadership training, every other Tuesday night, we're reading through a book called The Unquenchable Flame, which Cal 
recommended for us. It's an overview of the Reformation era of church history. It's an era which is dynamically connected to present-day theological trends and struggles. Some, back in 1999, even wanted to say that the Reformation was over, that Catholics and Protestants can now be together in their doctrine, which we would reject. It shows also where Millwood Baptist is in our history as a church. I've got a chart that I plan to give our guys on Tuesday night. We've not seen yet, but it really flows. It shows the the flow of the branching off of different branches of faith from the first century until today. Where are we in history? The chart, you can see that in 1054... There was a moment that's called the Great Schism between the Eastern tradition and what would become the Western Roman Catholic Church. Then, 500 years later, in the 1500s, really beginning in the 1300s, there was what we know as the Protestant Reformation, the break away from the corrupt Roman Catholic Church, which had begun to teach and still holds that the Pope himself is the vicar, the father of the church here on the earth. He speaks for God. He rules over the church with God's authority, as it were. Of course, aside from the rejection of the gospel of salvation by grace through faith, in the Roman Catholic Church, there were things like the promise of your loved ones being saved from purgatory after they die in exchange for a little offering. So you may have heard what Tetzel would go around saying, when a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. It's difficult to grasp the impact of the course correction of the Reformation in church history. But there are multiple moments leading up to the 1500s, and even after in our day, when we see challenges to the church and the church of Jesus Christ is forced to make a decision about its course going forward. What are we going to do? What are we going to say? We see fundamental challenges like those in church history in the history of the Southern Baptist Convention, for example, of which our history, we are part of historically and are part of now. The SBC was, of course, founded in 1845 and founded on the basis of a division over whether or not slaves and African Americans could serve as missionaries. A story in a moment where we were, as it were, on the wrong side of history, not allowing blacks to serve as missionaries. Then again, in the 1920s, many SBC pastors followed the direction of a fundamentalist movement, which was a good thing at the time largely led in cooperation, at least philosophically, with Presbyterian J. Gresham Macon. There was the, later the conservative resurgence in the 1970s and 80s where inerrancy of Scripture was defended and upheld in teaching in seminaries, or six Baptist seminaries across America. My point is, all of these are movements in which there are forks in the road historically, where the church at large in the West for us and our local church in recent history has had to make decisions about what we're going to believe and what we're going to do. And all those movements in our church history 
are, are good movements in the right direction, even if they are all imperfect movements, and surely they are. Is there, where we sit today, a challenge to course correct into error and a need to be careful to course correct our church and stay faithful for the coming generation? Well, there's not really a generation of the church since the founding of the church that hasn't faced some kind of challenge. It's been there from the beginning. You, you could look through the New Testament itself and see the first century church is wrought with false prophets and spitefulness and not caring for one another, all kinds of challenges. But I want to say this morning there are primarily two challenges that our church faces, the Millwood Baptist Church faces right now because of the air that we are breathing, the water that we're swimming in, and two, church, two challenges that really are challenging the church in the West today. I'm speaking in big general terms about pretty large portions of time. The first challenge, and maybe second in primary, in, in primary is pragmatism. Pragmatism. I, I sit in a room with associational directors and uh, kind of church network leaders a few years ago. Not, uh, you know, I'm just eating lunch there, just happy to be there. And one of the questions came up, what is the greatest concern in the Southern Baptist Convention right now? The swift answer from one of the leaders, someone who I look up to and, and thankful for, the answer swiftly was pragmatism. Pragmatism. What I mean by pragmatism is a desertion of the simple metrics of faithfulness being the teaching, preaching, and overseeing of the gospel in local church discipleship. In exchange, pragmatism takes on tactics, schemes, and plans which measure faithfulness as growth by numbers and makes numbers the main indicator of faithfulness. Pragmatism will do whatever it takes, anything, essentially, to get more numbers, more money, more people, more buildings, more campuses. Some examples in Southern Baptist history. Again, we're picking on Southern Baptists because that's our history. We're not talking about other people. We're talking about us, our church history. Four examples of pragmatism in the Southern Baptist Convention, for example. This is our air. This is our day. Going back to 1954, there was a campaign. The church was dwindling. The Southern Baptist church was struggling in the mid-50s. So the leadership in the Southern Baptist Convention came up with a campaign called A Million More in 54. A Million More in 1954. The campaign was launched to see the SBC, the Southern Baptist Convention, gain one million people by seeing one million people saved in that year. And by doing so, see the convention grow and not be so worried that the convention might fall, not be so worried about our finances being low as a convention. Oh, they ended up reaching some 570,000, uh, at least that was the number of professed faiths that year. 
But we see in church history, many of those began to prove to be false conversions. Did it do some good? Of course it did. I saw several stories on the internet this uh, week of people who became Christians through that movement because someone shared the gospel with them and they were encouraged by that campaign. And then their grandchildren heard of the gospel because they heard the gospel in 1954. But it also began a clearly defined era of defining faithfulness by numerical metrics. And so with birth, a generation of pursuing numbers as results. That's example one. Example two of pragmatism in the SBC, and this is an extreme one, it's an easy kind of pinata to beat up, is fire truck baptisms. An example of this is now infamous fire truck baptistry. A church in Arkansas spent $270,000 in the late 90s. I don't know the inflation number that would be today. To hire a well-known Disney World amusement park designer to come in and design high-tech sets, one called Toontown, which included a baptistry that was, a, that was set into a fire truck. And whenever a child gets baptized, sirens go off, confetti shoots out of a cannon. When you enter the room to this wing of children, when you go into Toontown, you enter through bubbles filling the air and streamers falling from the ceiling. Mist is sprayed on the crowd like you are in line for a ride at Disney World. Now you have to ask your question, are these kids coming and staying for Jesus or Toontown? Well, that pastor, what happened to him? What happened to that, to that pastor in Arkansas? Multiple articles and interviews began to pop up after the late 90s about the fire truck baptism. Do you think that was frowned upon or do you think it was celebrated? That kind of pragmatism actually ultimately culminated in the Southern Baptist Convention in 2021 in Nashville, Tennessee when that pastor from Arkansas in the late 90s was the executive director of the entire Southern Baptist Convention in 2021. So I sat in Nashville in the room of the Southern Baptist Convention in 2021, and I heard him putting forward Vision 2025, a four-year-long vision. The fire truck pastor was now the executive director of the convention, and he was putting forward the same kind of pragmatic methods and metrics for growing the Southern Baptist Convention as a whole. Now, this tells me a couple of things. One, this pastor was not simply just one niche pastor in Arkansas doing a few things that we might frown upon. He was being celebrated. He was being put in leadership. He was being asked to execute the directives of 47,000 churches that we call the Southern Baptist Convention. That vision was put forward to all 47,000 churches, Vision 2025. Never mind how opposite of Baptist it is to get a vision from a denominational leader for our local church. It was peak pragmatism. What was the vision? What was the direction for Vision 2025? These five strategic actions. One, strategic action number one, add 500 fully funded missionaries. That's really good. Strategic action number two, 5,000 new churches, add 5,000 new churches to the SBC, the goal being that we would then have more than 50,000 churches in the SBC. 
Strategic action number three, call out the called. We call people who we feel are called to ministry to come be pastors. We're suffering a severe shortage of pastors today in America. A shortage of pastors. Strategic action number four, baptize 12 to 17-year-olds. Strategically baptize 12 to 17-year-olds. And lastly, seek to increase cooperative giving, not corporate, but cooperative giving. That's the name for the financial plan of all of our churches together. Increase cooperative giving to $500 million annually. So 500 missionaries, 500 churches, more pastors, baptized teenagers, and increase giving to $500 million annually. Now, of course, these are good things. No one's going to argue, no, one, no one's going to say more missionaries is a bad thing. No one's going to say that, right? No, no one's going to step and make a motion and say, I think it'd be great if we just shot for 200 missionaries. I mean, personally, I'd be happy with, with less. No, we, we'd love to have 1,000 new missionaries. But there is here kind of an underlying pragmatism, a definition of disciple-making that undermines the meaning of church and evangelism and the very ideals of inerrancy that were won in the 70s and 80s. This kind of pragmatism in the church has dominated a generation or two of churches. You could say they go back to the 50s, so maybe two or three generations. It is, it is pervasive in Southern Baptist churches. Fourth example of pragmatism is the fruit of pragmatism. In 2018, there was a disciple-making task force, I think it was established in maybe 2015 or 16. Uh, Baptists, when we don't know what to do, we just, we just make a task force, we just make a committee to go figure it out. So we got this disciple-making task force, and they came to give a report in 2018. I think that was here in Texas in, in Dallas. And the task force was formed to determine the effectiveness of Southern Baptist church planting and disciple-making. So they were analyzing a 20-year period, a 20-year period. And here's what that task force reported. Despite the impressive number of baptisms over the 20-year period, 7.1 million baptisms were reported in the Southern Baptist Convention over those 20 years. Despite that number, the average church attendance remained virtually flat. And even after factoring in for mortality, the task force said 6.5 million people had dropped out of church attendance in the same 20 years. So something's not sticking. Something's not sticking. We are measuring faithfulness by bringing people in, yet people are leaving out the back door. So what did we do? as a task force, as a convention, to reverse that trend, well, we came up with what we always do. We came up with new metrics. We put forward some more and more metrics to try to achieve in a few years. That same committee that reported this reported that we ought to be a part of the 80 by 20 challenge, that in just two years, we would try to entirely reverse the numbers. In just two years, reverse the numbers to 80-20, so that we would have 80% of those baptisms actually staying in the church rather than just 20. 
Never heard a report on whether or not we reached the 80 by 20, but it is pretty well known that we did not. It's difficult to overturn decades of pragmatism with two years task force planning. And here's my point. My point is not to talk about people and names and places and impugn character. I've not mentioned names here on purpose. It's not about individuals. My point is to describe the cultural water that our church and generations have been, are, and are still going to be swimming in. And it's not just churches out there. It's not just the SBC out there. It's us here, too. We're, we're prone to being like this, to, to measuring church and what we do like this. But I want to say shortly here that the church is not a corporate organization who determines her validity and success by quarterly earnings reports. Few things often make us as disgusted as the infusion of gimmicks and corporate growth strategies into how we define the health, the success, and the well-being of a healthy church. 2 Corinthians 4, Paul says it like this, We have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves, that is the apostles, Paul says, to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let the light shine out of darkness. And this is God's pragmatism, if you will. God said, let the light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge, of the glory of God, and the face of of Jesus Christ. And someone becomes a Christian to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It is as much a miracle. It is like God saying in Genesis chapter 1, let there be light. We don't need gimmicks, pragmatism, or earthly measures. But this is the water culturally, historically, that we're swimming in. The current that we're in. That's one. The other is experiential and expressive individualism. Experiential and expressive individualism. And I mean this two ways. The phrase experiential individualism. Probably in the way that you hear the term that experience is the goal or the motivation of what we do. Experientialism, the goal is that ex having an experience is what we're after. The less well-known formal philosophy of experientialism is where the source of knowledge 
and epistemology where we learn truth comes through experiencing things rather than truth being objective, reasonable, and logical, or for Christians, revealed as our epistemology, if you're tracking. This, philo- this, this is the philosophical grandchild of relativism in the West. The idea that I am the customer everywhere I go, and the customer is what? Always right. In that worldview, the church is based, judged based on what? My experience. How fun is it? How therapeutic is it? Does it get the, does it get the adrenaline going? Does it give me goosebumps? How exciting is it? The number of pitches I've seen from church leaders and been pitched as a pastor that begin with the sentence, I have something really exciting to share with you. Something exciting. I just have a hard time imagining Ezekiel, Daniel, or Jeremiah starting their ministries on a Facebook reel with, I've got something exciting for you today. It's not the same. I think if we could go back, and I tried to find it this week, and some of you may be able to find it and send it to me later, the, the use of the word exciting in American history. It, it has to have peaked now. Everything is supposed to be exciting. It's not good. It's not helpful for you. It doesn't, doesn't have any appeal to you unless it's, ex, unless it's exciting and, and getting you excited about something. The expressive individualism piece is asking the question, does it affirm me and how I express myself? I'm going to express myself. I expect myself to be acknowledged, praised, and and agreed with because I am me after all. I I just am. I I am the way I am. And and so you're going to have to get used to the way that I I am. Why why am I the way I am? Because I am that way and I want to be that way. And and, and I feel like I ought to believe this. I feel like the church ought to be this. It it just comes from my my gut. I I feel like preaching ought to be this because I feel it inside. It's an epistemology called intuition where we get truth and meaning from the inside. That's where everything... How do I determine what's true in the world and what's real in the world? I feel it inside. I determine everything outside by inside. Nothing outside can really tell me what's true. Nothing outside can tell me that I'm wrong. Not God, not government, not parents, not the church. No one can really tell me, because I find the truth inside. No one can tell me what's true inside of me. That, that is expressive individualism. And while pragmatism may be considered to have grown from within the church, experiential expressive individualism is an influence from outside the church. And I think that we could say that pragmatism is in large part the church's response to the growing desire for experiential and expressive individualism. We're meeting a market need as a church. People want to express themselves. They, they, they want to have an experience. Pragmatism says, let's give it to them in order to win them. 
you want an experience? You want individualism? You want to express yourself? Let's make church fit you so that can happen. And so pragmatism comes up with sermon series like this. Six stages to accomplish your dream. Live inspired, reach your dreams. These are sermon titles, series from the leading Southern Baptist evangelicals today. So counseling then, preaching, gathered worship, small groups, our, our church calendars, they're all places where we're expected to be excited and affirmed. Let me just say, you, you, you might have experienced the backside of experiential and expressive individualism in your own heart and mind. On the backside of experiential and expressive individualism is the hangover of apathy. You wake up from trying and trying and trying and trying and trying and trying to be excited, 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 like a drug. And you wake up one day and you're entirely exhausted. And you're disappointed. You're disillusioned with the church. You're spiritually depressed. And then begins the road of not just disappointed and disillusioned, but deconstruction. Then begins the questions about the validity of Christianity, of its real helpfulness to me, of its real truthfulness to me, because you can't make individualism work in the church. Let me just encourage you, if you want to read more about this happening in the last 50 years, here's a, here's a few books for you. And I don't agree with everything everyone says in these books, but you might find these helpful historically. A Christian Manifesto by Francis Schaeffer. This one's particularly interesting because it was written in 1981. It's 52 years ago now. Was it 42 years? I, I'm, I went to Mary Harden Baylor, guys. I'm not a mathematician. Okay? I did psychology. A Free People's Suicide. Actually written by a Brit, Os Guinness, in 2012. A Free People's Suicide. Written about America. Another one is The Intolerance of Tolerance by D.A. Carson, written in 2013. And then probably most importantly, a culmination of many of these kinds of works is The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self by Carl Truman, written in 2020. The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, where he talks about expressive individualism being the dominant theme of the culture of our day. There's a big version of that, a big boy version, and I'll just warn you, I wouldn't waste your time. It made my brain hurt. Go with the small version, it might be more helpful to you. Now, conclusion about these two challenges. Does that just describe everything? Does it just paint everything for the last hundred years in America as, as bad, as really, really bad? That's not what I'm trying to do. That's not the case. There's lots and lots and lots of good. Even good came out of some of these efforts, even if misguided. Thousands of churches planted, thousands of missionaries sent, untold thousands saved around the world by prayer, and who knows how many millions and billions of dollars given by churches to support missionaries sent everywhere and see churches planted in nations all over the world. The point is not that there is no such thing as good in, in our moment, in our history, but that this is the challenge that we're particularly facing in our era historically. And it's not limited to Southern Baptists. I've been picking on Southern Baptists because that's our history, and that's us. And, you know, I've been told for years that you can't complain about the SBC unless you go every year and vote. Well, I've been going every year and voting. So here we are. Methodist, 
Presbyterians, Anglicans, Episcopals, no different. They're all having similar moments in church history. I thought I'll throw throw this out there. We had a previous associate pastor at, at this church who moved from this church, went to North Carolina, and became an Anglican. And I've been trying to reconvert him for years. It's not working. I remember talking to a former associate, Alex, a dear friend. I actually just messaged him this morning because uh, the song that we sing, How Good It Is, just reminds me of him. And so I just messaged him, but we, we talked not long after he made that transition. I just said, how is it over there? You know, I was at the Southern Baptist Convention this week. How's the Anglican Church going? He's like, dude, it's the same stuff. It's just the same stuff. The same stuff's going on, the same leadership, the same pragmatic, the, the same doctrinal challenges, the same infighting, the same, it's, it's there too. It's not any different. So this is not about the SBC, it's about our history. Methodism, Presbyterianism, Anglicanism, they're all going to show the same branch historically. When we look back at this, five, this 50 to 100 year moment, just like we saw the 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 Greek Orthodox Church split off and the Roman Catholic Church split and the Protestant Church. We're going to see a, a little branch off here in this moment in history toward pragmatism and experientialism and individualism. And this is a, a fork in the road moment that we are in. That's what's going on around. You might not always feel that, but I, I could show you, if you want to talk about it after the service today, how that is affecting the way we see church, what we see in the bookstore, what we see on Amazon, how we think about what we should expect from our church. It's the air that we breathe. It's the water that we swim in. That was my introduction. So what do we do as a church? What do we do now? Now all this is going on is not unique to our church heritage Maybe you have been significantly disappointed with the church. Maybe you are on the apathetic hangover side of pursuing experience. And you're feeling the disappointment. Maybe it just didn't do it for you. You woke up with a headache. Now now what do you do? Now what do we do as a church? Maybe you've been curious about what the church is really supposed to do. You've seen all kinds of churches doing all kinds of things. What's the church supposed to be doing? Maybe you've been wondering what our church is going to do next. What's Millwood going to next? Like, Like, what's the vision for the future of Millwood? One answer is that Acts is a renewing document. Acts is a renewing document for us. If you go back to the very first sermon that we preached in January, I think it was on January 8th, the first thing that we said about Acts is that Acts is a renewing document, meaning that it regularly, through church history, revives the church back to its original purpose. It regularly, through church history, revives the church back to its original purpose. And I'll thank Patrick Schreiner for pointing that out. So what should the church do 
We have to ask that question on a day-to-day basis. Every day we have to think about that, what are our plans going to be. We, as staff and as elders, we plan about the future of our church. But we're definitely thinking on a historical level as well. What do we do coming out of the 20th century flooded with pragmatism and individualism? Let Acts be our renewing document. Look with me at Acts 2. Look at verse 42 through 47. Acts 2, 42 through 47. Maybe in your mind, count the ands as we go through. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day they were attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. And they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Luke has intentionally compiled a brief description of the church's response to the gospel of Jesus Christ preached by the power of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2. And I'm only going to talk about Acts 2.42 the remainder of our time today, but this really, as I said, is an introduction into the next six weeks. Luke sounds like both a mixture of a careful historian and an overly excited child describing an event. And then, and, and then, and they were this, and, and every day, and... This is what the church did. It is, notice for example in verse 46, what the church was doing day by day. It wasn't just a a weekend event after they received the Holy Spirit and believed in Jesus Christ. This describes the new lives of those who repented and began to profess that Jesus is Lord and Christ. If we take what we think as a church maybe you, maybe Millwood, maybe the West as a whole, and we run it through the filter of Acts 2, 42 through 47, what sticks? What gets stuck there? And what flows through? What agrees with Acts 2 and clings to it? And what leaves? What do you have left? How much chaff is there? How much actual harvest is there? Here's what the church should do. First, devote themselves. Make a devotion. The word devoted means that they persevered in devotion. They persevered in devotion. Luke is not describing a short-term revival. He is describing something that they would not stop doing. They wouldn't stop being devoted Where the Spirit of God reigns, there is devotion to the apostles' teaching, for example. They persevered in devotion while while everyone else was doing whatever else they were doing. And despite being threatened with poverty and persecution and death, they remained devoted. Time did not deter their devotion. They stayed with it. Dear friends, this is a central call to the church today. Be devoted. Devote yourselves to the apostles' teaching. 
Some days it may feel like all you can do is hang on. You know, not even think about schemes and church growth strategies. You're just trying to, to be a Christian. Do that. Keep being devoted to the simple things that make the church the church. Stay devoted to simple practices like Bible reading. Stay devoted to praying personally and corporately. Stay to, devoted to, to getting together with the church like they did in Acts. Devote yourself to it. This is what they did. This is what we do. Generation after generation, we devote ourselves to the gospel and the fellowship and breaking bread and prayer. Don't give up devoting yourself to sound teaching and discipleship for the alluring promises of pragmatism. And what we need to do is change our tactics. Our pastor needs to come up with a, a new plan. We need to change our outreach screen, team, scheme. We need to get an outreach team. We, we need some pragmatic plan that will meet individual expressivism so that people will feel wanted and welcome and, and safe here. No, we are all the outreach scheme, as we'll see in verse 47 in a few weeks. The gospel of Jesus Christ being Lord, Him being crucified as sinners to atone us before a righteous and holy God, Him being raised from the dead to justify us before God, having paid the whole payment of our sin. That's the central, all-encompassing subject that we are devoting ourselves to, and that's what we're selling for free to the world. So make a devotion. Persevere. There is an unction in pragmatism to go find something new to do. We really need to remain devoted, perseveringly devoted to the church and to the teaching of the apostles. And that's what he says next in verse 42. Be devoted to the apostles' teaching. I mean, what is that? What is the apostles' teaching? Is there like a book of the Bible in the back called the apostles' teaching that you know, we, we kind of left out of the ESV? This essentially becomes the gospel. This becomes synonymous with the good news in the New Testament. The, the apostles were witnessing to the fact, the historical fact, that Jesus did many miracles, like raising people from the dead, healing the lame, like, like calming the sea, like, like miraculously feeding 5,000 people and telling the future. And they heard Jesus teach many times in public and in private. They, they witnessed him being crucified on the cross, and they witnessed him being raised from the dead. They, they saw it happen, and so they witnessed, they taught, they testified about who Jesus is and what he had done. The, the message of the apostles is simply believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Christ. He died for sin. He raised from the grave. Repent and make him your Lord today. You can be saved from God's judgment. You can be saved from the judgment, as Matt read this morning, the wrath that we deserve for our sins because we have sinned grossly in our hearts and our minds and our hands and our lives by rebelling against God and pursuing money and sex and jobs and wealth for our security and our meaning. We've made idols out of things in the world, worshipped the things in creation rather than the Creator, as we read in our building block this morning. The apostles are teaching, exemplified by Acts 2, Stephen as well in Acts 7, that the whole Bible is always looking forward to Jesus. So Peter will say things like this. This is the apostles' teaching in Acts 3, 17 through 18. 
Acts 3, 17 through 18. Now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance. He's talking about when they killed Jesus. They, they killed Jesus. His own people killed him. I know that you acted in ignorance. You had no idea. You, you guys were fools. As did also your rulers, the Romans. They, they killed Jesus. They didn't know what they were doing. They didn't realize he was the Messiah, that he was God's son. But look what he says. Here's the apostles' teaching. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that as Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. The apostles are teaching that the Old Testament was saying that Jesus was going to come die and raise from the dead. The apostles don't just show up saying, we've got a message, I saw some things. They're also teaching that the whole Bible was always looking forward to Jesus. So the apostles' teaching really encompasses the whole Bible from beginning to end, centered on the person of Jesus. And the apostles saying, you guys are ignorant. But God said what he was going to do in the Old Testament. That's their theology. Same for David, same for Moses, same for Genesis. Church, what are we to do? What are we to be doing today? Devote ourselves to the teaching of the apostles. Devote yourselves to the teaching of the apostles. In a world awash with pragmatism and experientialism and expressive individualism, what do we do? We're a church who reads our Bibles. We gather around the Bible being preached. We get together in small groups and we respond to the word preached and we look at the word for ourselves. We get together one-on-one during the week and we read through the Bible together. We devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching in our lives, in in our rhythms. We don't have to go look for something else to do. What does the church do? Devote themselves to apostles' teaching. What should I be doing as a Christian today? Join a life group. Join a building block for the first time. Go back to the announcement page in your worship guide, in the very back few pages. There's a QR code there. If you don't have someone to meet with regularly for discipleship, to read the Bible, we will help connect you with someone else in the church so that you can devote yourselves to the apostles' teaching in a one-on-one relationship where you get to really talk about your life and apply it to Scripture and pray for each other personally. And someone else will help you either understand the Bible or just enjoy it and grow in it together. Devote yourselves to the apostles' teaching. That's what we're doing. And they were devoted to the fellowship. Verse 42 says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. And fellowship sounds like a very churchy word, or at least maybe something from the Lord of the Rings. But faith in Christ is a, is a fellowship, both with the church and with the Trinity, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The joy of being a Christian, as we sang this morning, is not an individual experience. By definition of what the church is, the whole body of Christ, it is a shared fellowship with each other and with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I find it kind of difficult to describe this word. The Greek word is koinonia. We have a member of our church, Leanne, who named her uh, I'm going to call it a people training business, a dog training business uh, called koinonia. Uh, maybe you can ask her a little bit more about what that word means. But here's a picture, though. Last week, one of our elders came up to me in the foyer uh, outside and said, I just love that sound. I said, well, what sound is that? He said, the sound of the church talking after the service is over. that's getting at the part of it. We we love to be together. We have one Lord, one faith, one baptism that we all share. Our lives, our time, our money, our beliefs, it's all shared. 
And all that comes not because we're all, we're all Cowboys fans, although I know we are. It comes from Jesus. It comes from believing in Christ. That, that's the big idea. And it flies in the face of individualism, which determines every venture by personal excitement and affirmation, and instead enjoys the usness, the fellowship of the church. I mean, just look at the song that we sang this morning on page 8 in your worship guides. Oh, how good it is. Oh, how good. Look at verse 2. Oh, how good it is on this journey we share to rejoice with the happy and weep with those who mourn. For the weak find strength, the afflicted find grace when we offer the blessing of belonging. Now, that can be hard. We don't always do that well. This church hasn't always done that well for me. I haven't always done that well for others in the church. We struggle with that. But that's the fellowship. That's what it is. When you're asking the question, what are we supposed to be doing? Enjoying fellowship together. Enjoying community. How radical is this in today's culture? Praying together, singing together, sharing our lives in a fellowship that's not centered around anything about us, not anything about our personal expressivism, but coming here and corporately, like we did this morning, the thing that binds us together is that we are all together expressing our sin to God and expressing thankfulness for the gospel together. Our expression is simply our need for God to save each one of us. And they're devoted to the breaking of bread. Devoted to the breaking of bread. The language and the repetition here, I think, leans toward this talking about the Lord's Supper. They devoted themselves to breaking bread. The remembrance of Jesus crucified. They kept remembering Jesus together. This comes from Jesus' institution to the church telling them, do this in remembrance of me. He told the apostles in that upper room before he was crucified, you take this bread, you take this wine, and you keep doing this in remembrance of me. So we do what we're going to do this morning. We just keep remembering together. We keep reminding ourselves about the, the thing that makes us in fellowship. That's Jesus in the gospel. That's our fellowship. Remembering that Jesus died on the cross to atone for all of our sin. The guy that's been bothering me, Jesus died to atone his sin. The guy that is... Weird, the, the mom that mothers differently than I do, the, the one that's struggling to, to discipline her child, the, the college student that's just whatever. What unites us is the blood of Jesus atoning our sin. And we keep getting together as part of our fellowship, breaking this bread as we're going to this morning, to remind ourselves that our fellowship is around the gospel of Jesus Christ and nothing really else binds us together. I mean, there's just some of you guys that I just don't know that our paths would cross. We probably wouldn't hang out that much. Mainly Chris, because he's from Pennsylvania. And, and cheers for the other team. Devoted to the breaking of bread, that's part of our fellowship. And finally, lastly, devoted to prayers. Devoted to the prayers, it says. Which might be referring to some specific prayers, either in the Psalms, or potentially Jesus' prayer that he taught the disciples to pray. Surely they were praying as Jesus taught them, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. Give us this day your daily bread and forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. Lead us not into temptation. What do we do? While the church is taking a pragmatic shift and the world wants to make the church more exciting and personally expressive. What do we do? 
As a church, we pray. We get together to pray. Every Sunday morning when we pray, when we gather, we pray. We have two times in our service just to pray together as a church. We have services on Sunday evening where we come back, we hear a shorter talk about some subject, and then we spend the rest of the hour just praying. We're just there to pray. Pray without ceasing, as Paul said. Pray together. If you're looking for some reading this afternoon, read through the book of Acts and compare the number of times you see prayer, pray, or prayed to the number of times you see fire truck baptisms. I told you it was an easy thing to beat up. Seriously, though, read through the book of Acts and just look for prayer and just see how it's encompassing everything that they're doing. It's always going on in their gatherings. They get together and they devote themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and they devote themselves to prayer. What do we do? Pray. Be very, very weary and cautioned about the mindset that, that is in our world, that might be in our own minds, that might come from within us, that might come from without us. I know, I know, I've heard the announcements, I know there's a prayer meeting on Sundays, but what are we going to do as a church? That's it. Pray. That's what we're going to do. That's what you church members are being called to do is pray. Church, have you devoted yourself to prayer, personally, corporately, pray in your personal devotion, pray through the membership, pray in all of your one-on-one meetings for each other. We pray confession in our gathering, we pray pastoral prayer, we, we get together to pray, on, we come back to spend the second half of our day of rest together praying. Come back tonight, five o'clock. Cal will have a short talk for us, and then we'll spend time praying. A couple concluding thoughts here. This is what we do. This is the first of six verses that's telling us what the church does. We get under the apostles' teaching and we fellowship and we break bread and we pray. What's the plan for the youth ministry? Devotion to the apostles' teaching. Things like prayer. What's essentially our bottom line plan for the youth ministry on Wednesday nights? Devotion to the apostles' teaching and prayer. Cal, that's what we expect of you. Devotion to the apostles' teachings. To lead our students to learn how to pray. This is the plan for men and women's ministry in our church. Not to provide a long list of activities. You could do that. You could go anywhere you want, do anything. That's not our, that's not our, our plan. Our plan is to help one another be devoted to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our plan is to persevere and devotion. Don't hold bitterness. Don't stay in disillusionment about the church. Only one concern I think I have for churches is disillusionment. It easily becomes self-righteousness, and self-righteousness easily becomes bitterness, and it easily becomes division. Because we have begun to develop things that the church is supposed to do and be, and we think we have a better idea than, than someone else, and there begins a separation And we should just stay in the simplicity of are we devoting ourselves to the teaching of the gospel, to fellowship with one another, to bread, to prayer. 
If it's not going well, we need to be asking ourselves as, as individuals, is it because the church has not really shifted towards me? Or because I've shifted from the devotion in Acts 2? Well, there's all kinds of problems in the church. All kinds of struggles. I've got my own. Churches are not perfect in their care. They're not even perfect always in their teaching. Jesus, just keep reading the New Testament. It's not all roses and relaxation for the church there either. But make sure, make sure, church, this is our plan. To be devoted to the teaching of the gospel from Genesis to Revelation. To keep breaking bread here together. To remember Jesus Christ. And to remember that this is the identity of our fellowship. We're going to keep praying. And we're going to keep enjoying the fellowship. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace to us through Jesus Christ, for your kindness to this word, to give us this word on this day. You know how much we need it in every single way, in every individual heart, even as a church, in this moment in history. Help us by your spirit remain devoted to the teaching of the word, to prayer. Father, we just take just a moment to reflect on your word and how you might apply it by your spirit to our hearts for this week and coming days. Father, we love you. We pray this together in Christ's name. Amen.